Oh, it's good to, good to be here. How many of you are really glad to be here tonight? I am. I, I'd rather be here than an emergency room. Would you say amen to that? Okay. This is a whole lot better than that. If you've ever visited one of those places, this is a good place to be. Um, I want to get right after it uh, because I want to get you out of here at a reasonable time. And if you say amen and help me preach this sermon, I'll get you out of here at a reasonable time. Just don't get too excited about that getting out of here on time. You got to say it at the right time or I keep you a little longer. Okay. Let's start out with our memory challenge. Anybody look at 1 John 2.25 today on your own? You actually took your Bibles and looked at that. A few of you did. Anybody else? I would encourage you. Get your Bible out. Now, you can memorize this verse. I don't care if you have NIV, NAS, ESV, you know, Amplify, whatever translation you have. If you look at it, it's going to be very close to what we're going to say tonight together. But look at it and memorize it. Get a visual of it. Say it to yourself. Say it to someone else. And it'll start sinking into your long-term memory. This verse is just becoming so precious to me this year. I chose it at a men's retreat for the spring. Man, I just couldn't get away from it. It just fits in every sermon I've ever preached. And so I thought, I'll just keep doing that. So it's still the memory verse. It may even be this fall's memory verse. I don't know. But it's 1 John 2.25. So just make a, write that down someplace. 1 John 2.25. Now I'm going to say that to you. And then you'll repeat it. Then I'll say a section of that verse. You'll repeat that. And we'll just say the verse together. Saying scripture is a powerful thing. Just making it audible. Satan hates it. God loves it. So let's, let's please the Lord tonight with this, okay? 1 John 2.25. And this is the promise he promised us. Eternal life. Eternal life. Hallelujah. Um, Titus 1, 2. Paul's writing a pastoral epistle to Titus. And he says this, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. A promise from God, in your journey of faith, you'll come to the place where you, a promise from God is more precious to you than a guarantee from man. How many of you know what I just said? How many of you know a man can make a promise and circumstances prevent him from keeping the promise? He may be sincere in making the promise. I've made promises before, and I had every intention of keeping them. But something happened that I couldn't keep my promise. Okay, I had to cancel those of you in our Bible study this morning, I had to cancel about 12 weeks of meetings that I had scheduled a year and plus out because of an injury to my foot. Something happened. How have you know nothing's ever going to happen to God that he won't be able to keep his promise? Good place for an amen. He'll keep his promise. So a promise from God's a valuable thing. And what he says is, I'm promising you eternal life. That's the hope of the gospel. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. Is the Bible true? We took a quick look at that last night. You should settle that. You really should. If you're debating it, don't leave this week without settling that baby one way or the other. I mean, is it true? Oh, I'm going to take this off. I'm... Goodbye. You can leave now if you want to. I can tell if you're here or not. If it's not true, then what is your source of truth and upon what do you base that hope? that your source of truth is true. 
if the Bible is not true, then what is your source of truth? Because everyone wants to live according to a truth. They believe something to be true. Well, what is, upon what do you base that hope that what you're saying is true is true? What do you, what's your hope in? Mine is in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. In this book, that's exactly what God said. And this is the promise that he promised us, eternal life. This is my source of truth. Everyone lives by faith. The only difference is everybody inside this room and outside this room, I don't care what denomination, Hindus live by faith, Buddhists live by faith, Muslims live by faith. You go right down to atheists lives by faith. The only difference in a person's faith, everybody's living by faith. The only difference in your faith and anybody else's faith is the object of your faith. Now what makes me a Christian is Christ is the object of my faith. Paul preached repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. A real historical figure, person, we believe, according to Scripture, virgin born, the Holy Spirit of God overshadows Mary and conceived in her womb. She contributes 100% to his humanity, but not one ounce to his deity. The Father of God contributed to his deity, for he was God in the womb. God shrinking. See, these are the things that are unbelievable unless you choose this as your source of truth. How you know his virgin birth puts him in a class all his own? Good place for an amen. Would you agree with that? So he's not going to be put on the shelf to compete with the other gods. He's in a class all his own. According to this book, and what I believe is my source of truth, he is God. But everybody's living by faith. The atheist, what is the source of their truth? Ask yourself that question. The person who says there is no God. No, no God. No, no, all that is, that's just all a bunch of baloney. What is, in other words, he, his hope is in that we are just so many molecules in motion, nothing more. That's all, just no different than any other kind of living thing. We have no origin, we have no destiny. And because we have no origin, no destiny, we have no meaning, no purpose. We're just, go to the grave, worm food, and it's over. That's it. That's their source of truth. And that's their hope. That's, uh, I hope there's nothing to her after this. Upon what do you base that? Darwin? Stop thinking about it. what are you basing your hope on? Well, I heard somebody say, who was the somebody? Where'd you get this from? Are any of you tracking with me or not? Well, let's get down to why do you believe that is your source of truth, that there's nothing after the grave? This is it. One needs to search their own soul, their own mind and heart and say, where did I get that from? What does that really mean to me? Because everybody has to have some source of truth, what they believe about life, and what is the hope of it? Abraham, Hebrews 11, 8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed, not knowing where he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. Sojourn means he just traveled. He was nothing but a, basically a Bedouin shepherd tent dweller, and he would just move from pasture to pasture, and he, God said, count the stars, he said, I can, he said, you're going to have a nation, like count the sand, he said, I can, he said, you're going to have a nation like that, and he said, through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed, and he just believed God to be true, and so he left Ur the Chaldee, he was not a Jew, he was a Chaldean, I mean, we're talking about the Persian Gulf, and he left Chaldee, and he started his journey of faith, because he believed that God had told him to do this. And his faith was so contagious that his dad, who was an idol worshiper, said, Son, I want to go with you. Because I don't believe there's much to these lifeless idols I'm worshiping. You seem to have something that's changing your life. Can I go? He made up to Haran. Seven years later, his dad died. And God said to him, Ready to continue the journey? He said, Yeah. And when he entered into the land of Canaan, where his son Isaac would be born, 
a Canaanite, not a Jew, a Canaanite. You don't have Jews until Jacob. He fathered them. He said, now every place a soul of your foot's going to touch down, I'm going to give to you and to your descendants forever. And he believed God. Let me give you the verse. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place where he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing where he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Here's why. He looked for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. God said, I got a city I'm building for you. And he just believed him. And he went to this land. He's got his son and he's got his grandson. You got three generations and they're passing on the promise one to the next. This is the promise of God. And we know the promise of God to us is eternal life. They just believed that God had promised them a city, a place, a dwelling. For, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed because of this. Watch this. I'm going to skip Sarah and go down to verse 13. And it says, these Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and blah, blah, blah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They never saw the promise fulfilled in the natural eye, but through the eye of faith, they saw it. They could see things that others couldn't see, and they confessed, we're just a stranger here, just a pilgrim. They had embraced some. They that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Now truly, if they had been mindful of the country from which they came, they might have had opportunity to return there. Watch this. They might have had opportunity. But they declare plainly they seek a country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he hath prepared for them a city. They all died in faith just because they believed in the promise because they could see it by faith. This is what God's going to do. I don't understand it all, but I believe it. My life is going to be, I'm going to obey God. Obedience, faith is obedience. They're synonyms. They hold hands. They had embraced basically the message of Hebrews that says to the church, Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. You know what the city is he were looking for? Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I, and I heard a great voice in heaven saying, the tabernacle of God is with man and he will dwell with them and will be their God and they shall be his people and he shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death nor sorrow nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away that's this old preacher's hope one of these days the city he promised Abraham for here we have, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for here we have no continuing city. Excuse me, that's not, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our lowly body that it may be fashioned according to his glorious body. You don't have to get excited. I'll get excited enough for all of us about this. 
I'm ready to trade this one in now. Anybody want to say amen? Because I'm going to get one like Jesus. And when he shall appear, we should be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And until we see him as he is, we're going to see him as we think he is as we look at his word. One of these days, these eyes, with these eyes, I'm going to behold him. That's the believer's hope. Hallelujah. Okay, now the next point. Man, I love this stuff. I just think it's great. I know it's true. Well, let me see. How do we get going to this message? By the way, that's not the sermon. So you think, oh, is that it? Well, we're not. <laughs> don't, don't count on it. Our text, I quoted it last night. Let me give it to you again. I, I'm not going to give it to you. We're just going to take a glimpse at it, and I'm going to try to set the stage. A lot of this stuff is going to be historical tonight. For some people, biblical history is boring. I, 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 to me, I, I love it. It's, it gives me the feeling of the reality of it. These are real people, real time. This is not a story. It's an account of things that happen with people just like you and I in time that I find myself living in. I live in time. These people lived in time. They weren't half human, half, half angel freaks. They were people just like you and I who had the same God we're preaching about tonight from his word. Now, in Acts chapter 24, verses 24, turn to Acts 24 and wait for me. Okay, just... And yeah, I know some of you have heard that before, but just wait for me. Let me give you the context. Paul is in Caesarea, land of Israel, um, Sea of Galilee, Jordan, Dead Sea, Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem and go toward the Mediterranean on a little bit of a northwesterly direction, you will come to the town of Caesarea. It's a coastal city. It was built by Herod the Great for Caesar as a gift. It was Roman from start to finish. It was a miniature Rome in the land of Israel. Man, did that bother the Jews. Good Jews hated the fact that there was a miniature Rome dominating God's people. And they were building their city there to govern God's people. And they knew that the reason was their own rebellion. They could look back in their own history or God's story of their nation to see why this had happened. Caesarea, I've actually been there. Joyce and I have been to Caesarea. They had a Colosseum, an amphitheater there. They had a chariot racetrack that you can still see from the air where they used to race the chariots. It was Roman. The Mediterranean, they had built a breakwater out, made a, it wasn't a natural port. All that had to be dredged out. All, we're not talking about the kind of machinery we have today. We're talking about slave labor. And they moved all the dirt. They dug the dirt out of the, uh, and made a port there and a breakwater here. And we actually could see the remains of little tiny ceramic tiles all over the mosaic tiles that they had designs of Caesar and uh, Rome and certain places that would, it was just breathtaking that you would walk out into this Mediterranean bath that was bigger than this building. Just unbelievable. I mean, they spared no money, Herod did, that he collected from the Jews. It was an unbelievable city. Paul is in this city. It's not the first time he's been there. If you come to Jerusalem from any other part of that world, you, and you come into Caesarea to go to Jerusalem. It is the military retirement center for the Roman military. It is the governmental headquarters for Palestine, though it wasn't called Palestine then, not until 135 AD, when the Jews said Palestine comes from the word Philistine, so they're going to try to destroy the language, the culture, and everything that has the religion of the Jewish people because they constantly have trouble with them because they think they're God's people. So they started calling them the land, the land of Palestine. But it was the governmental headquarters for Israel at this particular time. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, let me, I'm gonna just give you some information about the Apostle Paul. He has had three world-class tour missionary journeys under his belt. Power, church, going places and preach. I mean, he's either been beat up, stoned, in prison, whipped, unbelievable things going on, but the power of the gospel is penetrating the world. The light is shining into the darkness. The world is a very educated world at this time. The Greeks had Hellenized the world. That Greek was still the trade language. It wasn't Latin. It wasn't the Roman language. It was the Greeks. Paul was born in a place called Tarsus. This is significant. Tarsus was a Roman city. If you were born in that city, you were born with Roman citizenship, which, by the way, just a, a little bit later after Acts 24, as he's standing before Agrippa, he appealed to Rome because he has the right to. How many of you remember the account where Paul is whipped in Philippi, beaten publicly, openly, him and Silas, and thrown in jail? How many of you, I don't know why I'm asking questions, I can't see nobody. <laughs> you, how you, you do know your Bibles well enough to remember that. And when they found out that he was a Roman, the officials trembled. They were terrified, and they went in and said, uh, we didn't know you were a Roman citizen. You're free to go. He said, wait, wait, you're right, I'm a Roman citizen. And you beat me openly, an uncondemned Roman? You see, a Roman citizen had muscle, had rights. How many of you are glad of the rights you have as an American citizen? Any of you glad of those? I, I tell you, we have traveled a lot of countries. I am always so glad to touch down back in America. In fact, I don't even like to cross the Blue Water Bridge. I mean, that's a wonderful country, but I love, I have things here I don't have there. How many of you followed that? You go to Mexico, you don't have what you have here. Paul had this on a global scale because he was just born in the city of Tarsus. Tarsus is a Roman city, but it is a Greek culture. He learned, Paul is probably trilingual at least. He spoke fluent, fluent Latin and Koine Greek, of which he wrote most of the New Testament in was written in Koine Greek. A very, uh, he understood the mind of the, the Greeks, of which the world has been influenced because of Alexander the Great's influence over the world. And so he had that understanding. So he's born in that city. He's born in the home of a Pharisee. We, I, I'm not going to take you to different verses. Said he's a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. His dad was a Pharisee. A Pharisee is somebody who went to the rabbinical schools of theology in Jerusalem, and they graduated and were... They got their degree in being a Pharisee. They understood the law of God. They didn't understand the truth in the law, that you can't keep it, but they understood the law, and they wore themselves out, straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Now, can I tell you something? Jesus had more problem with the Pharisee than any other group. How many of you knew that? It wasn't the scumbags that knew they were sinners. It was the people who thought they didn't need God. I can keep his rules. And so Paul, so about the age of 13, his dad would have had his bar mitzvah and said, son, you know I've graduated from the rabbinical schools of theology in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, son, I want you to see Jerusalem. Would you become a Pharisee? And he said, I'll do her, dad. So about 13 years old, he packed him up and he took him on a trip of a lifetime. They got on a ship and they left Tarsus up here and because Tarsus had a river that connected it to the Mediterranean. They, they got on a boat, they come down, they get on and they maybe touched a couple other porch tires. But they eventually made it down to Caesarea and they came into this city where now he's held a prisoner for two years. And at 13 years old, this is a memory maker for him. And his dad takes him, it's about 40, 45 miles from Caesarea. If you take Highway 443 now, it goes into Jerusalem. That's, that wasn't there at that time. 
But they took him into Jerusalem, and he saw the holy city, the city of Zion, the city of the great king, the one he'd heard about his whole life. I can tell you this. When I went to Israel, I had for over 20 years secretly said, oh, God, I want to see Jerusalem before I see it in the new Jerusalem. We're all going to see it someday, but I want to see Jerusalem. It is the greatest city on earth. It's mentioned over 800 times in Scripture. There is no piece of real estate in the world that has influenced the world more than the city of Jerusalem. It's where, as Christians, we know our Savior performed miracles. He was circumcised in the temple in Jerusalem, and his birth was recorded. At 12, he was debating with the PhDs of his day in the temple in Jerusalem. He was crucified in Jerusalem. He was buried in a tomb in Jerusalem. How many of you know what I'm saying right now? Are everything else in his story stands in the shadow of this crescendo of God's work on earth. It happened in Jerusalem. And the stone rolled away and the Savior came out victorious over sin and death and hell. Jerusalem. I remember when we saw it in our bus, the tour I was on, we came around and when I saw that, I just began to weep, the city of Jerusalem. This was the city where the apostle Paul, as a young boy, was taken by his father and introduced to Gamaliel, who was the head chief Pharisee of the day. You couldn't get a better education as a Pharisee than sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. And he took him in. This is my son. His name is Saul. Not Paul, Saul, first king of Israel. I, Jewish just... Jewishness just oozed out of Paul and his dad and his family. He spoke classical Hebrew, Latin, and Koine Greek. Paul was a mover and a shaker, his personality. He's headed, he is destined for big things, at least in the eyes of man. He's headed that direction. He drops them off. He said, uh, we'll come and we'll get you in the summer, bring you back. And he spent a year there. How many of you know at 13 years old, you really are probably more impressionable than you'll ever be in your life? You've got so many changes going on in you, biological, emotional. It's unbelievable. And he is, something's happening to this boy right now. He's falling in love with the city of Jerusalem. He's falling in love with the traditions of his fathers. He's learning things and seeing things about Israel that make them a nation different than any other. He's learning the dietary laws and he's learning all the things about sabbatical behavior and he's just learning these things and he's gobbling them up. Hmm. He stays there till he's about 19 because at 20 years old, according to Jewish tradition, you're to learn a trade if you're a man. And at 20 years old, you're expected to be a man. If you read Numbers and a number of other places in the Bible, at 20, you're supposed to be a man. What does that mean? You're supposed to be able to husband a wife, father children, pay taxes, go to war. There are certain things at 20 years. How many of you know you did not want to be 21 years old when Moses was told that generation is not going from 20 years old and upwards, not going into the promised land. They're dying in the wilderness. Because he said, you should have been old enough to know to side with the Joshua Caleb side and believe that God was going to give him the land. I mean, so at 20 years old, you know what he did? Now he's 
graduated. He's got his degree. He goes back home to Tarsus. Tarsus is known for its dyes to color uh, certain skins and hides to make awnings. In the days of Paul, everything was open market. You didn't go into a refrigerated store to buy your food. You went to markets. Certain colored, maybe it's the red and white awnings were the fish market. Maybe, or the blue and white, we'll say, is the, the fish. And the red and white is the beef and the chicken. And all, here's this open market. And people would just look down there looking for a certain thing, maybe looking for a cabbage. And they look down there and say, oh, there's a light green one down there or something. That's where the cabbage is at or the carrots are at or the vegetables are at. And it was a very lucrative job. And he learned how to, how you know this was the occupation that he supported himself in some places where he went and had a tent-making ministry. He just went and did a job. He learned it as a twin. Because I, I think there's something good for us all. Everybody should have a trade. They just should. Every man should have some kind of trade that he can do. I don't have anything I can do but labor. I can work. Okay, I uh, need somebody just to dig a hole. Ta-da! I can do that. Okay, But I don't have any trades. Our sons were both licensed builders at 19 years old. They had a trade, had their own businesses, those kinds of things. Well, Paul did that. Let me see. Are you in Acts yet? I've been waiting for you. Well, turn back just a couple of pages to chapter 21. I'm going to read something. He's under arrest. Now, I've, I've, I think I've already said he's got three missionary journeys under his belt. He is a world-class apostle of this movement that is turning the world upside down. Governments are bowing. They know that this is not just some ordinary kind of a cult that's showing. This is, in fact, something that's changing lives. The arenas are now being filled with Christians who are singing praise as they turn the animals in on them. Paul's involved. This is, Paul has went around and established churches. He, 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 went to the, he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas as the head elders. The Peter, James, and John clan in Jerusalem are beginning to say, well, maybe we should add circumcision to salvation. Paul heard about that, and I guarantee you, him and they headed to Jerusalem and said, we're going to take this on. And he established, listen, if you're going to start doing that, there's no end. We're going to forsake grace and go right back to the law. And he defended the faith, the faith alone in Christ alone. He defended that. So this man is, is brilliant in so many ways. He's just a man gifted, anointed of God. But this is in his later years. He's probably only three, maybe four years at the most away from dying at the hands of Nero being executed at this particular time. Now, in Acts 21, he comes to, he spent some time in Ephesus. By the way, he has in the last year to year and a half before this arrest, he has written the book of Romans. And oh, people, if you get Romans, you're going to make her in your journey. If you understand the truths of Romans, you're going to get her. You'll you'll be all right. And he's written 1 Corinthians, and many commentators say the ink is just drying on the letter The second letter to Corinth, powerful letters about grace and about Christian living, powerful thing. So he's got those two under his belt. He leaves Ephesus and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I hope this isn't 
wearing you out. I, I love this kind of stuff. Um, boy, I'm thinking, what can I eliminate? If I start on that trail, I've been another 10 minutes there. Um, something, I heard that, Lord. Go for it. I heard somebody say that. Okay. <laughs> Don't you wish it were that clear? Um, I believe Paul's being ruled by a passion. Uh, theologians bat this back and forth, and I don't want, how many of you know, you want to be real careful when you start making some kind of a criticism of an apostle of God. Would you agree with that? But I can tell you this, they were people. Do you know who's used in the first letter written by Paul as an example of how not to live the Christian life? Peter. He used Peter and put him in scripture, called him a hypocrite. Because up in Antioch, he could sit down and have a BLT with the, with the Gentile Christians. But when the brethren from James or Jerusalem came along, he separated himself and began to sow division. That's a disciplinable offense in the church. And Peter was guilty of it. So how do you know these guys, though they were apostles, anointed of God, they were, they were still human. Would you agree with that? So they still had capacity. And I wonder about Paul because he's, let's pick up the narrative. In verse 4 of chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 4 of Acts. And finally, the disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul, through the Spirit, that's interesting that Luke records that, through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed seven days and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed and when we had taken our leave one of another we took ship and they returned home again and when and when we now this is the, this is Luke I mean this guy pens the gospel of Luke and he also writes the, the the Acts of the Apostles. That's a lot of scripture. This is not a nickel dimer. This is a big hitter. A man who knows God knows his anointing as he writes scripture. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to and greeted. I just can't see it. I really could pronounce it, okay? How many of you have some in here you're not real sure on? Rather than mass, I guess I say it any way you want to. And greeted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered in to the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, early church, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, who did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was, this is the guy that predicted the, the famine that was going to come to Jerusalem to Israel. And it came true. He was a bona fide, legitimate prophet. So he's not going to shoot from the hip. If he's going to say something, the Lord's going to tell him to say it. This is Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Spirit. Wow, what a statement. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owneth this belt, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard, we, Luke, heard these things, both we, Luke is concluded, and they that, 
and they of that place besought him not to go to Jerusalem. Luke is saying, Paul, don't go. God don't want you going. The Holy Spirit's warning you. Giving you, you've got one up here, you've got another Holy Spirit warning down here, and I'm telling you, Paul, don't go. He's close enough to Paul to be able to speak to him face to face and say, I think you're wrong. You shouldn't be going. Let's read the next two. Then Paul answered, what meaneth he to weep and break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, the will of the Lord be done. I'd like to meditate on this thought on this. People, there's times when God gives you warnings through other people or through other circumstances. Learn to heed warnings. If they're, I'm not talking about somebody just taking a pot shot. I'm talking about somebody that loves you, knows God. These are the people that know and love Paul. And they're warning him. And he's blowing them off. I think about Balaam. God gave him warning. He said, don't go. I don't want you to go. And he said, well, I wonder, God, if I could just ask you again, and maybe you let me go. He said, go ahead and go. But I told you not to go in the first place. And as he's riding his donkey, the angel, sword, he takes off and runs out of the field. That's warning number one. Just a kind of a casual saying, I didn't want you to go, and your donkey's never done this before. You ought to turn around and go home. I'm speaking to you. Don't, don't go. So he gets his donkey and he thinks, what in the world's the matter with this dumb donkey? And then pretty soon the old donkey's trotting along and sees the angel going, and it's in a narrow place, and he leans up against the wall, terrified, shaking. He's thinking, what's he see? What's the matter with this dumb donkey? And he crushes his foot. He smacks him a couple times, said, you dumb donkey, what's the matter with you? Get going. God's warning him, and he's ignoring the warnings. Until finally gets up a little bit farther, and there stands the old angel of the Lord with a sword drawn. And the donkey, paralyzed with fear, falls down, hurts old Balaam's leg. He jumps up. He said, if I had a sword, I'd kill you, you stupid donkey. And God made the donkey talk. How have you know? Are you familiar with this or not? This is not a story. It's either true or a lie. And, I just believe it. and the old donkey said, have I ever done this to you before? And he says, well, no. <laughs> By the way, how you would have answered too? <laughs> no. And then the angel said, I'll tell you what, you would have killed your donkey if you'd have had a sword. Well, I got one. And if it hadn't been for your donkey, I'd kill you and let the donkey go. And he said, well, do you want me to go back? Duh. How do you know we shouldn't do that to God when it comes to warnings? There's times God, I know God has given me warnings and I'll bust through them. I'll rationalize it away. And I end up in trouble when I do this. I wonder about the Apostle Paul, who's not made of spirit only, but flesh and blood, has a youth, a memory, a passion. There are things from my own childhood that have left a mark on me that have influenced my life. I grew up, the only thing I've ever wanted to be my whole life is a farmer, a dairy farmer. That's the only thing I ever wanted to be. I never wanted to be a cop, I became a cop. I never wanted, I never wanted to be a preacher. I wanted to be a dairy farmer. Well, we own 12 acres. And I can remember one time <laughs> fencing that property off, and working like an idiot, and getting cows. A neighbor gave me a cow. I sold a cow. I bought a cow from him. A bull. His name was Belvedere. <laughs> and he was an Angus bull. I just love That's my favorite animal, bulls. Why? Because I grew up listen to my grandpa talk about his bulls and tell me stories about bulls and how dangerous they were and there's always that risk factor and that kind of stuff. He had two mammoth, big old Holstein bulls in his barn that he used for his herd. And he'd go in there and he'd 
He'd get up on the rail and he'd step over on that bull's neck and that neck and lift my grandpa's 245 and he'd just lift him up and down like he was a toy. And then my grandpa talked. He was leaving impressions upon him. He didn't even know it. 12, I used to go spend my summers with my grandpa and I fell in love with my grandparents. And they had an influence on my life and I wanted to have cows my whole life. But unless you inherit the farm, you ain't going to start making it in dairy business. Can I tell you that? It ain't going to happen. I love the smell of a barn of, of hay curing on a summer night. I even love the smell of manure. I know you knew I was weird. Now you really know I'm weird. Not hog manure. I like cow manure, okay? I just, ah. I still do. I go by some barn. What are you doing? Oh, just getting a high, you know. <laughs> by the way, you all have your cows in your life. It may not be cows, but it's something like that. You have it. And you might, if you traced your life back, the impressions were made when you were impressionable, when you were a kid. And when his dad dropped him off, he, had he fell in love with the city of Jerusalem, and he longed for Jerusalem, but his commission was clear from God on the road to Damascus. He says it in the next chapter, after 24, about 25, he's born a crip, and he says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, and those who were around me saw it with me. We hit the deck. We fell in the earth, and I heard a voice speaking in me in the Hebrew tongue, saying, Saul, Saul, why persecuted? And he said, Who are you, God? He said, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecuted. He said, What do you want me to do? He said, Arise and get upon your feet, for I'm going to deliver you from the people, the Jews, and send you to a people that are not your own. He knew his commission was clear, the Gentiles. He never got over his passion for the Jews. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, he puts in a parenthesis to the Jews. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that I have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about and establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves. I think I can help them. I've got other guys doing that, Paul. You go to the Gentiles. He knew his commission. God's warning him. Don't do it, Paul. Don't do it, Paul. Don't do it, Paul. He said, I don't care if I die, I'm going to do it. Since when do we determine that? Since when do we say, I'm going to run the risk on this? We better get our words from the Lord. I may be all wet, but I think he's being ruled by a passion. And it may be a noble one, it's just not God's one. And he goes. He goes into the temple. By the, if you want to read something to set context for these four verses we're going to eventually look at, read Acts 20, 21, read it up all the way to our, and you'll find out how he ends up in prison, in jail, in Caesarea. They almost killed him. They almost, it says, tore him apart when the mob grabbed him in the temple. They seized him and drug him out, and they were about to kill him. And from the Tower of Antonio, a soldier reported to the Tribune, we got a riot going on, we need to settle it. And the troops marched out, and I got news for you. You either let go, you either stop what they're trying, they would kill you. And the Jews knew that. That's the only reason Paul's life was spared. But for two years, he's going to be under arrest in Caesarea because they took him away by night because they planned 40 men to kill him. They took him to Caesarea by night. And for two years, four verses cover his life. Not one epistle written. No record of anybody being saved. He's just sitting. That's interesting to me. That's interesting to me. Well, now the message. We're there. Amen. Good, good timing on that. It was a good one, okay. It ain't going to shorten the sermon any, but it's a good, good amen.
I'm good for another hour. <laughs> I will not do that to you. If you listen fast, ten minutes, fifty, somewhere in that area. <clears throat> when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess, that's very significant. If there's anybody that knew the Jews, it was Paul. He spotted her the moment he saw her. She's a Jewess. And he, if there's anybody who knows how to reach the mind of a Jew, it's Paul, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Felix wanted to hear. That Greek word is akustos. You get the English word acoustics. That's the art and science of sound. It's not just hearing. It's I want to listen to what you say. This is a private audience. Maybe two personal bodyguards and Drusilla and Felix. He's heard a lot about this, the way, the Christian, Christian faith. It is going global at this time. He says, I want to hear firsthand from one of the biggest hitters there are in this movement about the faith in Christ. The faith in Christ is the gospel. And it says, Paul, and as he reasoned, that's where I want to, I just want to focus on that word for the next few moments. As he reasoned with him of righteousness and of temperance and of judgment to come. He reasoned. Dictionary definition of reason. To logically think something out. Facts that make sense and persuade into a belief of truth. That's a dictionary definition of the word reason. Of any religion in the world, Christianity is the most reasonable religion there is. He wanted to reason with him. Brian, are you in here tonight? My son, there you are. Now, Brian's in a lot of public schools. Uh, he ministers. He said, Dad, in the 70s, he said this, there was a movement to get God out of school. Prayer, God, Bible. As the 70s turned into the 80s, get God out of government and uh, those kinds of things. And he said, basically, that has occurred. It's amazing what kind of evil you can get away with in our world system, our, our governmental system. But boy, I'll tell you this, you better be real careful if you say anything positive about the God of the Bible. So God's been booted out. But he said, you know what's being tried to be booted out now? Logic. People don't even know how to reason today. They have no moral compass. How do you know when you boot God and the word of God out, you have no moral compass from which to make sensible decisions and understand facts? Do you know what I'm saying? He said, it's like we have no, well, if it's okay for you, the mentality is if, if you think it's right, you know, he talked to students about the murders that have, the mass murders have been going on here and there, and they said, was that wrong? What do you choose to, right and wrong, good and evil? How come the Bible talks about cultures that get to the place where they call evil good and good evil? They put darkness for light and light for darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter and they're wise in their own eyes and they become very conceited and blind to truth. That's, this isn't something new that's going on, people. This is nations repeating the process of walking away from God. And he says, is it right or is it wrong? And nobody was, was willing to take a shot and say it's wrong. Well, it, it, if the person who shot the people thought it was right, I guess it was right for them. How many of you do not see any logic in that? There's no reason to that. 
to logically think something out, to consider facts that make sense, make sense. Paul is going to appeal to a man who knows how to reason, and so does his wife, Drusilla. He's going to reason with them. Did you know what distinguishes man from animals? The ability to reason. How many of you know that dogs will not gather tonight and wonder who they're going to vote for in November? Say amen. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. Now, we may be doing that, but the dogs and the cats are not going to get together and reason this, what we should do. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Daniel. Oh, good, okay, you do know that. In Daniel, chapter 4, here's what happens. Daniel now is, he's told the king about the vision, those kinds of things. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges him as somebody that has contact with deity. And he has a dream, and it's troubling him. I don't know if I do this now or not. I'm going to do it. I don't know how you pray for our leadership. Every day of my life and my morning prayers, I pray for President Obama, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, John Kerry. I used to pray for some other ones that are no longer in positions of authority, but I pray for them by name every day. I used to pray for them to come to repentance and salvation. I've stopped praying that. I pray for God to give them visions and take their sleep away from them and have it troubling during the day and for them to seek out some godly person to tell them what it means. Can I tell you something? I've got a long list in this book. How many of you know that's exactly what God did to Pharaoh in Egypt when Egypt was running the world? He had a dream. The fat cows, the thin cows, the fat grain, the thin grain. And he says, I've got to find somebody to tell me what this means. It's troubling me. I can't even sleep at night. And finally, in God's sovereignty, one of the slaves who had been released from prison where Joseph had been come and say, oh, I forgot about that guy in prison. How many of you can see God's hand in all of this? Would you agree with that? I don't know if you know anything about Jonathan Kahn, but he might be a man to consult. A Jewish rabbi, a messianic Jew, who I think has a pretty good concept of what God's doing in America. His name's, he's spoken, he's prayed in Congress. You pray as God leads you. That's how God has been leading me. How many of you know when you take enough dope to knock you out, you wake up, but you're not rested? How many of you knew that? Everybody in this room needs sleep. You need sleep more than you need food and water. You need air more than sleep, but you need sleep. And when you don't sleep well, things start shutting down. It's not functioning right. How many of you know that sleep is a gift from God? God just withholds that. Trouble him. Abimelech had a dream when Sarah was in his group of concubines. And in the dream, he heard God say to him, you are a dead man. How many of you know that's a nightmare? Would you agree with that? <laughs> and he wakes up in the morning and he says, I didn't know she was your wife. And he says to God, I've not touched her. He said, you know I've not. He said, I withheld you from touching her. Now you release her and send her away with a blessing. God can do in an answer to prayer things all the other prayers wouldn't do. They, that every leader in the world needs to have contact with the God of the universe, the Almighty God. Now, that was not in the sermon. Sorry. Anybody know where we were at? The book of Daniel. Here we go. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Here's how, when he asked Daniel, would you interpret it for me? He said, well, I'm not real crazy about telling you what the interpretation is. He says, tell me. 
I need to hear what it is. I know you know. Tell me. In verse 27 of Daniel chapter 4, he says, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if there may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. And I have written right next to there, America. It may be God's going to send one more revival to this nation, but you can't destroy, you cannot mass murder children like we've done. You cannot embrace laws that are totally contrary to God and expect God to wink at it. We are going to be judged, dear people. But could it be, dear God, that you and your mercy, if our leadership would break off their sins by righteousness and start showing mercy rather than corruption, it may be you'd give us a lengthening of your tranquility. Now that's probably as political as any sermon you'll ever hear me preach because I don't enter that arena. I just proclaim the word. But dear people, God judges nations. He judges them. He tells him that. I'm going to speed this up. Twelve months pass. Nebuchadnezzar forgets all about what the warning was. And he gets up on top of his palace and he looks out over the city of Babylon. He said, look at this great city that I have built with my hands. And while the words were still in his mouth, a voice from heaven spoke and said unto him, oh yeah, why don't you just go out and eat grass for seven years and we'll take up the conversation later. That's a loose translation, okay. (laughs) But it's in there. Now let's pick up the narrative again about verse 33. The same hour was the thing accomplished. It was fulfilled. Upon Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from men and did eat grass like oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Let me give you a picture. Look at this great Babylon that I have built. Oh, yeah? I got news for you. You're going to become like a beast, like an ox. And you're going to be grazing and eating grass. This is a man whose beard, whose hair, whose fingernails are as manicured as anybody in the kingdom. He has people primping him to look beautiful, the king in his glory all the time. Can I tell you something? It's not long before the spittle's in his beard and nobody can get near him because he's snapping at them. His fingernails grow out and begin to curl. His hair looks like feathers, unkept, yet he's the king. What made the difference? Let's pick up the narrative, verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven among the kingdom of men. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Watch this, verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and my brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. He became like an ox. He ate grass, chewed a cud, spittle in his beard. A man that at one time sat on a throne and ruled the nation, an unbelievable, a military strategist par excellence. 
You couldn't find it any better. A builder, unbelievable, acting like a... Let me ask you this question. Have you ever tried to reason with an ox? Any of you? I'll give you this experience. God told me a number of years ago, get rid of my cows. I had 14 at the time. I'd left the state police. He said, Tom, you ain't got time for them, but I love them. I just love them. I had a big old Holstein, had an udder that big around, faucets like that. I, our kids grew up eating, drinking raw milk. I used to love to go out there in the barn. I could just touch her foot, and she'd put it back, and I'd sit down, put that five-gallon bucket, and just big old head of foam. I used to love it. Oh, my God. I named her Dorothy after my mother. I just love this cow. And God's saying to me, in his spirit, and I'm not getting any kind of visions or anything. God in his spirit saying, Tommy, ain't got time for this. I got a different call on your life. I want you to do this. Is there anything wrong with farming? No, but that's not my call for you. I want you to be a preacher. I want you to travel and do what I want you to do. And I said, okay, God, I'll do them. But I want this too. He said, you can't. How do you know if you have animals, you do have to take care of them. You do have to be home. You do have to... And I didn't have the time to do both. And God is saying, Tom, I want you. I'm going to Bible school. I was trying to pastor a small church and blah, blah, blah. And, things. and finally, I got rid of all of them but Dorothy. He said, Tom, get rid of her. I said, this can't be God. Started rationalizing away. And finally, she had a calf and didn't clean and got sick and died. In fact, I had to shoot her. She was the vet says, you can call the bone man or shoot her yourself. She's, she's. And I said, okay, God, I got it. No more cows. And I went about eight years of no animals. And I had a buddy hear me talking about my love for cows. And he says, Tom, I got a pole Hereford bull calf I'm going to give you because I know you love it. I said, no, I don't want it. He said, if you see it, you'll love it. I said, I know, but I don't want it. And he brought it over. You're going to let me take this alone or any of you know where I'm going? Well, maybe this is of God. Somebody say amen, okay? God said, I don't want you to have it. God changed his mind. And he dropped that thing off, and I raised it up for five years. It weighed $22.50 when I finally sold it. I mean, it, that, he was a pet bull. I used to put an ear of corn in my back pocket and walk around. He, one day I didn't have an ear of corn in there, and I didn't know it. He knocked me from here to Tuesday. And anyway, but during that time, ain't no sense in having a big old bull if you ain't got a couple heifers. Anybody going where I'm going or not? Before I knew it, I was back in the cattle business. And we've had cows, and our life is changing. I got no time for them things. When it hurt my foot, Joyce had to do chores, had to deliver a calf out in the barn and all that kind of stuff. Going up and down that loft, I've got a ladder. Nobody should walk up and down in that thing. And I'm praying and I'm worried. I can't do anything. And I said, that's it. This is the last word. I, I, I got the message, God, we're getting rid of our cows. But because she was bred, we kept her one more year. Her name is Beauty. And she had a calf, the one that Joyce delivered in the barn when I was down. And we named him Paleface. He was all black with a white face. We, named, we gave our cows Indian names. and He was Paleface. And he's a big old fat, savage, beautiful looking thing and nursing. And, but she's pregnant with another calf, so we had to separate him because she had to dry up at least, you know, six to eight weeks. So she had colostrum milk. Aren't you glad you came for this tonight? I, 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 that's what I'm telling you. This, this stuff I just love. And God's saying, it's okay, Tom, but it's not okay for you. I got something different for you. Can I tell you something? Where you want to be as a Christian is in the center of God's will doing what he wants you to do. And you've got to find out what that is. And I knew it wasn't farming. God's saying, I don't want you to be there. I'll give you a cow in heaven, okay? 
By the way, how do you know there will be animals in heaven? Did you know that? Well, no lion and lamb are going to be there. Going to be, and there will be some Holsteins. Anyway, okay. I, so I told Joyce we're going to get rid of them. So we, I had to put a separate fence in, separate old stupid pale face from his mother. And sure enough, she has this beautiful calf, little heifer calf, which, boy, heifer calves are future herd, right? So there was been a part for two months, and the little calf uh, got up. She's nursing and growing along, and so I said, I think we can put him back together because we already had a date for him in October. He's going to be our next beef. And that idiot started nursing her again. I mean, he's a great, I mean, he's a, 1,200 pounds. And he's in there, and he run that little calf off and sucking it all down, slobber all of his nose. And I went out to him, and I said, I'm going to reason with you. I said, if you nurse her tomorrow, I'm going to take you to Ballinger's, and in two weeks, I'm going to bring you home a little one-pound packages. <laughs> now, how do you think that might tell you? I don't think I'd do that if I was a human. <laughs> do you know what that idiot did the next day? We picked him up just before we came here in little one-pound packages <laughs> because he wouldn't reason. There is a difference between, and our culture is trying to say there's no difference between us and dogs and cats and any other kind of animal. What separates man from beast is our ability to reason. I'll give you one more. You're not saying amen enough. <laughs> Joyce had chickens. She loved her chickens. And uh, we had chickens for years. And I uh, had a rooster. It was in with the chickens, and a coon got in there one night. And he roasted them all over the place. And that old rooster said, I ain't roosting in here no more. I'm going to roost in that tree just outside your bedroom window. <laughs> you already know where I'm going, don't you? And that rooster about 4 o'clock in the morning started crowing. I went out one morning, and I, talk, I tried to reason with him. I said, you crow in that tree tomorrow morning at 4 o'clock, and I'll have you over for supper. I actually thought he was understanding me because he was kind of going. I said, I told Joyce, I said, I think he's getting it. And the next morning he crowed and we had him over for supper. I blew him out of that tree. Amen, amen, thank you. I don't know how to close this now. You ever had a dog you try to reason with or a cat? Ever try to herd cats? You know. <laughs> I, I, one more. Just one more. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. Jesus in the temple, and he's teaching. The Pharisees come in and said, who gave you authority to be in here teaching? He said, I'll tell you what. I ask you a question. You answer mine, I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they got over here and they began to reason. And they said among themselves, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why weren't you baptized? And if we say it's of men, the people will stone us because they regard John as a prophet. So they came back to Jesus and said, we cannot tell. And Jesus said, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. How many of you know that is a slam dunk? Would you agree with that? I love that reason. 
you start putting the word reason in scripture and you will see the scriptures a more reasonable truth than you'll ever find any place else. It appeals to the logic, makes sense. Oh, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be made as wool. Just look at the words sometime of reason in the scriptures. Reasonable question to close with. What is your hope in? Not your faith, your hope. Your hope is something that is future tense unseen. Your faith is present tense evidence. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What's your hope in? Hebrews 6, 18. That by two immutable things, the two immutable things are who God is and what he's like. Those are the two, they never change. Who God is will never change. What he's like will never change. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. It is not impossible for you and I to lie. We do it. But it's impossible, ume, impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both steadfast and sure, that which entereth into that which is in the, within the veil where Christ Jesus, our forerunner, hath for us entered. If you understand that, that's your hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My faith is evidence of what I believe truth is. Tomorrow he reasoned with him of righteousness. The gospel will be preached clear. The next night will be temperance. We are not saved by temperance, but by righteousness. And then of judgment to come. Probably the most sobering sermon you will ever hear me preach. And then, either the deceitfulness of riches, I'm not sure. I thought I had another sermon. There's one I've never preached that I want to preach. I may do that on Friday. Don't miss your opportunities, people. Don't miss your opportunities. Some may think that'll come again and again. God may give you an opportunity he will never give you again. Well, we're done. Thank you for listening so patiently. God bless you. Let me pray. Matt, are you going to come up and give us some closing music? Heavenly Father, if I've said anything tonight that's not been accurate or according to truth, would you snatch it from our minds before we leave the building? But if truth has been shared, God, in a world that seems to be content to believe lies, would you speak to us a truth? God, would you just never let us be able to escape it? Leave a mark on us, brand us with the truth that will trouble us until we embrace it. We need you, God. You do not need us. You would be God if we were never around. But we need you. Our life, our strength, our hope, our song. So help us somehow take the scattered thoughts, coordinate them, speak to... There is many people his that are here tonight. There's that many different avenues by which we are traveling. Help us on it. Help us on our journey, our past, passions that may be ruling us. Turn us to you just a, a little degree or two closer toward where we're supposed to be, dear God. Please, I pray. And we'll thank you for whatever you do because we know you do all things well. 
And we pray this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus.